Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Dark Rhino Security, Security Confidential. I'm your host, Manoj Tandon, and today we are honored to have Hans Vargas Silva join us. Hans is a graduate of Purdue University with a master's in information security. He has a lot of experience in the field of cybersecurity. Uh, that's actually an understatement. He has worked at organizations like Sally May and Marathon Petroleum as a cybersecurity architect and is currently with Marathon in the cybersecurity, GRC, and IT compliance space. Hans is passionate about giving back to the community with volunteering, and we're gonna get a chance to hear his thoughts on that. Welcome to the show, Hans. Thank you for joining us on this Friday afternoon. Thank you for the invitation, Raj. Appreciate you being here. So I guess, you know, a great place to start, you're from Peru. And when yes. we think of Peru, we cybersecurity is not, I, not the first item that comes to mind. How did you get into cybersecurity? What was that journey? How did that go? Well, um, I, I must say that I'm very fortunate and very um, blessed in some ways that to be where I am. It wouldn't be my wildest dreams when I, you ask me, what, what are you going to do in your life after high school? Uh, I wouldn't have said this. I, I knew I liked computers okay. and um, I, I was a lab brat for a while, you know, where I, I didn't own a computer. My parents couldn't afford it for the longest time. And actually, even when I was in college, I didn't own one until my last year of, of college. Okay. And it, but I was in the lab, you yeah, know, volunteering sure. my time to, to re reformat computers, uh, you know. Anyway, so yes, I'm from Peru, South America. I'm from this jungle side of Peru. And um, I, I went to school to do a systems engineering uh, degree, a bachelor's. And uh, through a series of fortunate events, I, I met to, uh, my wife in Peru when she was visiting and teaching in a local school. And that's how I, we, got, um, we got to get married and moved to the U.S. And through a series of jobs in the U.S., many of them which were not initially IT, I find my way back to IT, and I found an opportunity to um, be awarded a, a scholarship for service through Purdue University. Excellent. Serious. So through the service, I went to school for my master's in two years, and I gave back time, uh, two years, working for the state of Indiana. And that was a great experience. Um, I was able to put a lot of the things I learned in practice. Uh, my two years were up, and I was necessarily in a rush to leave, but I got an offer to join the financial services as a cybersecurity architect, which was a great opportunity. Um, and again, uh, almost a year into, I was offered to join Marathon, uh, another great opportunity. And I've been here for the last almost four years. And I started as a cybersecurity architect and uh, moved it to an opportunity in the governance, risk, and compliance. And that's what I, I've been learning a lot during these last two years. Uh, so that's my journey. That, that's uh, quite a story there. And I'm sure you're giving us the abridged version. There, there's probably a lot of very interesting details in there that could make for a, certainly at least a couple chapters in a book. Probably, yes. Right. So you have, uh, you know, one thing I noticed about you is that you have degrees and certificates from great schools, Purdue, MIT, Harvard. How do you think 
that education shaped your career? Has that had a huge play in it? Um, the desire to learn, I guess, um, it's always been there. And it's always been an expectation for my parents. I am a first, um, first everything, first graduate from high school for my family, um, in terms of my parents, at least. My mom got, um, I guess, I had me very young with my dad. Um, she was 17. She couldn't finish high school. And so she's always in put that into our minds, like, look what we couldn't do. I mean, she eventually finished uh, night school, but she said, there are opportunities I don't have now, not because I regret having you, it's just because this is what happened to our lives. And and the opportunities that she didn't have to go to school and, and the means perhaps from her family, right? So she, they always had that, look look at our example, do something better, and we're gonna do, try to give you the best that we can education-wise. And the means were not necessarily there. You know, I am the first of three children. And for example, for the longest time, I was the only one going to school that my parents could afford sending me to school while my older brothers had to work and wait. And um, I finished, I was able to help them to finish their careers and we're in a better place. Now the opportunities that I've been taking advantage um, I guess I'm seeking those opportunities to learn something new. Yeah to get exposed to new knowledge and I guess how to apply it is also, and perhaps we're gonna talk more about giving back, uh, which is part of, um, I guess, my DNA in some ways, uh, because I've received so much, I wanna do something for somebody else. And if that means sharing, mentor, mentoring, um, or being part of these type of conversations, um, I'm very glad to be part so of it. So if there is someone listening in Peru right now that is of, lesser means or lesser opportunity than what you were, and they want to get into cybersecurity, what would you suggest for them? Do you have any thoughts? Yes. Um, I think one of those things that I, I was I was told once before, and it's very true, is somebody cannot take away something you learn. That's very true. And, and if you do something greater with what you learn, um, you're going to grow. And is that through a small business? Is it through a school? Yeah. I believe there is a, at least in Peru, uh, it's, it's true, this education is it's, it's as a mechanism to get out of poverty. And, and so you see a lot of people excelling in, in math and trying to get to a school. Uh, if you cannot afford a private school, you, can, you have to apply to a public school. So it takes sometimes three years to get in because it's, it's free, but only the best can make it. And so uh, I guess my, my advice would be to have a goal and then understand what you really want to do and then pursue it. It might take you longer than it has in, in my case. Um, I mean, I'm not a young youngster uh, and in my life it has taken a while to get where I am, but it's always to be optimistic of the future. And that's something I can, I can relate to. And the U.S. is the perfect place to be uh, and to take advantage of those uh, opportunities. But in Peru itself, um, a growing economy, uh, at least prior to COVID, I should say, um, and we've been in worse situations. So I think the, the future is, uh, could be brighter. You know, and we see the same thing. Um, you know, I, I've spent some time over in India in that society as well. Education is primarily viewed as a way to get out of poverty. Now, same kinds of situation. Uh, but the one thing is there that if 
there is a child who has a sense of wonder and is absolutely hell-bent on pursuing it, somehow a lot of those opportunities open up for them. And, and I've always said, you know, if you're in an unfortunate predicament, but you have that sense of wonder, as long as you hold on to that and push through, success will come. It has to. Because attitude is also important it, and also the sense of work ethic. People see that and people notice that. Um, yes, there could be somebody who is very charismatic and, you know, can make his way through life, but uh, usually hard work pays off. And at least it's, that's my experience. Oh, absolutely. So let's, let's switch over to a little bit more, uh, of a serious topic, um, critical infrastructure. And while we were talking about this, you had actually brought up a Netflix episode. Uh, so, you know, why don't you tell the story and. <laughs> well, let me let me preface it saying I'm not necessarily advocating for Netflix. They're not paying me or sponsoring me. So this is just a, my personal comment. Uh, there is a series called Spycraft. Yep. And I was interested, um, actually the last episode, uh, they do a quick interview, uh, I think it's like minute 30 of the, of the documentary. Uh, his name is James Gosler. He's his retired um, CIA officer. Okay. And he makes an assessment. He just makes, just says, uh, like, like it's not a big deal. And he says, a lot of the questions I get is, how worse is going to get? And he says, I'm going to quote him, um, I use the words catastrophic and existential related to the loss of everything, electricity, computer, power, etc. cetera. Uh, there are no communication, no car, the cars are not working, the power, no power to the houses, refrigeration is not working. So he says the most people can survive a day or two, uh, maybe a week without supplies at home. Uh, but once you start getting to weeks, um, it's, 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 it's going to be difficult. And you just think about water and electricity. The very little likelihood that this would happen, but low likelihood with catastrophic impact. That's worth thinking about, he says. So I highly recommend that everybody do that. Think about it. Uh, and. And he says it in a tone like it's, it's not a big deal, you know, it's not like there's certain urgency. He just says it like, uh, you know, think about it. And I, I had to listen to that three times. And how I think in my, in my mind, or what as I relate to critical infrastructure is, it is absolutely true. You know, the, the U.S. is very depending, our way of life is depending on gas, electricity, and, and water you know, being readily available. You know, Absolutely. being in India, me from Peru, blackouts, you know, water shortages are not necessarily um, un unheard right. of. So people prepare, you know, gallons of water, maybe a tank of yeah. water somewhere in the, in the ground or above, um, electricity, well, uh, candles, yeah. yeah, you know, or something, right. some other type of or means to, to illuminate your home. And people, I don't know, um, have a way to um, preserve food, like, I don't know, smoking them sure. or salt. And they eat a lot that of fresh food, too. not going to go to waste. You know, right? they eat a lot yeah. of fresh. So. You have a chicken running right, around. Right, exactly. So that you uh, don't need refrigeration. <laughs> but I am speaking as a person who's been in the U.S. for, for so long. And then if this would happen, and we see it potentially happening, we've, we've seen threat actors testing, you know, trying to poison water supply, you know, just by alterating the, the chemistry on the, or the flow. There was an attempt in Florida recently to do that, that exact thing. So 
it, it could potentially happen in our home. I mean, uh, to our communities, you know, our the small critical infrastructure is, is privately owned and they are not necessarily cyber protected. Uh, that was one of the things that I was working in the state of Indiana before coming here. There is a certain urgency, but there, there is no funding or there is not necessarily the the incentives, right? Or the mandate from the government to do something about it with private private entities, in this case, um, most own, own critical infrastructure is private, right? right? So it's not until something catastrophic happens that we're gonna realize that we are highly dependent on those on those things but it uh it shouldn't take a catastrophic incident and if you remember uh way back in the 1800s there was a solar event uh that had sent a surge through all the telegraph lines now in the united states and had caused uh, uh major issues if that same event took place today it would likely severely damage the grid and we would have just think about exactly what you're talking about, right? Just think about um, not make it a cyber attack, but think about is a you know it's a fluke on the cloud services. Just think about that. We depend so much in our communication, our email, everything is moving to the cloud, and if we have an interruption, if if it just my local provider of internet provider will just you know had an issue, I lost productivity, I cannot connect to my to my company, I'm working from home. So, you know, what do we do? You know, you know it's going to be affecting our business, uh, our employers, our way of life in some ways. You know, we depend on, we don't write letters anymore. That's right. Uh, we just expect to dial a number uh, and, and get a video call. Um, I don't think I remember not phone numbers anymore. <laughs> I don't think any of us <laughs> to do. Be honest I, with do you. you even have a phone diary with everyone's phone number in it anymore? It's probably in your well, phone. It speaks. Oh, well, think about inf um, incident response, right? That's you're supposed to be having that in your in your teams. You know, what happens if you cannot depend on your systems? But I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, our critical infrastructure is is fragile. I'm not an expert, but I can see how how the impact could be catastrophic in some ways. Yeah, uh, you know, Ted Koppel actually wrote a book on this topic. Uh, a book titled Lights Out. So if the listeners out there want to take a quick peek into that, I would I would highly recommend uh, taking a look at that. I'd also recommend a, a, another book, uh, the title of which is The Perfect Weapon. Uh, these are all great reads. And, you know, Ted Koppel, uh, a very credible journalist, uh, talks extensively about if the lights go out, what's going to happen. And uh, if you think about major cities like New York, where people are living in high rises or Chicago, one of the biggest problems is going to happen is sanitation because they're not going to get water. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have water being able to be uh, pumped up and and people to live and depend on the way things are. And and as we have seen with what the Russians uh, did with the Ukraine, there is a vulnerability. Right. And I think maybe the only deterrence that still is that we would consider it an act of war. I mean, if somebody shut down the grid, that is an yeah. act of war. But uh, sure, you can respond, but it doesn't do anything to help the people who would. Yeah, I, I, I didn't hear. That's more a conversation in the kind of a military um, military round, I yep. guess. Um, but 
and the, you know the the ability of what is enough, right? We we know some 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 actors have been, I don't know, still in P, you know, PI, no IP, yeah, intellectual yeah. property, and they are monitoring somebody's network, and you know, but uh, disrupting that is is going to be a very aggressive. Uh, and so what's the response from a country perspective, right? And we've seen examples, and I don't think the U.S. has done anything about it. But also the U.S. has been infiltrating all somebody else's right. networks and, you know, doing the, the exact same, probably. Um, so it, it's it's a hard problem to, or a, a very hard subject to to argue. You can argue in both ends of the the spectrum uh exactly and i but i think that this is a weapon that's likely to get used because cyber uh cyber weapons uh they don't require you to have tanks and submarines and all this military mm. infrastructure you can cause a great deal of damage by being a small intelligent country that has some reason or axe to grind with someone right it's asymmetrical warfare at its best asymmetrical yeah. at its best yeah and that's very true and with uh, the readily available tools now in the dark net and the exposure from some of these tools from the nsa yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty much label field i mean you have leveled the field of access to these highly sort of sophisticated tools and and the weaponization of those have, have been very interesting to see in the last 10 years well i, I mean if you look at petroleum uh not to pick on you but uh, I think Saudi Aramco got hit by the Trisis worm, and that nearly shut them down. And that was an attack on the safety and control systems in the refinery. So you would think that if Saudi Aramco is uh, vulnerable to that, probably a lot of other folks are as well. That's yeah. We've seen also the the effects that has taken on. Um, companies that they're not necessarily the target but then get affected and then they cannot recover their you know their means to restore has been compromised and, and i forgot the name of the company but it was a shipping company and because they have a uh, domain control that it was in africa that happens to be disconnected from the internet saved their lives because that that was the only com it domain controller that was not infected and they were able to recover their their infrastructure based on you know uh, i know uh, yeah i i want to say there were two if it's the same incident i'm thinking of it was actually the russian uh cyber attack on the ukraine and fedex yes. and merck merck were both uh innocent collateral damage in that and, and you know what happened in that case? I think that court case is actually still pending because their cyber insurance policy came along. Their policy carrier said, we're not paying it because an act of war is excluded from the policy. And the fact that the Russians did this on Ukraine, that's an act of war. And you guys were collateral damage? Well, tough. And... Well. <laughs> Some lawyer over there, had, you know, got a really good bonus for denying that. Claim. Well, they took him to court. <laughs> sure. uh, that's right. So now but, it's pending and it'll be interesting to see how that shapes up, which brings us actually to government regulation. Right. Correct. <laughs> right. Well, there's so much that the government can regulate. And and in some cases, I agree with there are some very outrageous um, 
mishandles of security controls or security in general or privacy, uh, people's um, people's information. And I think the government's role is to to say something about it, to protect the, I guess, the, the consumer or, you know, but uh, in some areas also, I, I find that the government is, and this is a criticism for our government here, is uh, they're not necessarily doing a better job to show us a way. That's right. Um, regulation sometimes could be very burdensome for companies. Just think about SOCs and other type of regulations that states, countries in, enact, and the and the extents that companies have to go to comply with that is, is if you just were to quantify the amount of money and effort and resources spent, um, I wonder if sometimes it's, uh, it, it's not necessarily try, uh, addressing the issue or the risk. Um, I don't know. Do you have other no, you know what? You know that I, I would agree with you. And if you look at what's happened even in our own federal government, our federal government has lost a lot of data. Like uh, I think China took OPM. all the forms uh, for security clearance uh, out of the. Uh, OMB, they they had access to all of that, and I'm sure that those guys were supposed to be compliant with everything. You know, one thing you know about government bureaucracies is they love compliance and they love audits and frameworks. And but compliance for the sake of compliance is just a low bar if you think about it. You know, a compliance is you need to meet this minimum criteria, and then some people think that because I meet this criteria, I'm secure. Most people think and that. I, I'm so glad you said that. Most people think that we have such a hard time convincing people that being compliant doesn't mean that you are secure. In fact, uh, I think we've had four or five guests where I've bring brought that subject up with because we do feel strongly about it. Compliance does not equal security. Yes, I will agree with that. And I am in, I'm in right now in the area of compliance. And, and yes, we are to comply. But if we do it just to the just to meet a specific requirement, and we don't see the context of the risk, uh, if you're just complying just because somebody told you need to be complying with that, this you know, Article A. B, um, and you don't have the context of why are you, how is this addressing risk? You might be you might be leaving a big gap and the risk open just because you are too too busy looking at the specific article or the specific section of a standard that, that you ought to be just check marking it. So Hans, how do you get decision makers to see that compliance does not necessarily equal great cybersecurity? That's a tough question because um, I will have to give our leaders um, the benefit of the doubt because there are so many so many priorities, depending on the day of, of whoever is dictating the how we should we go. Uh, some things could be in the back burner, and it doesn't mean that um, and they're important, very important. But sometimes there's there's an initiative to do this, right. and there's an initiative to do that to to focus on upgrading something or moving to a different system, or to you know uh, often sometimes we ignore. Um, culture awareness of security in our organizations uh, we punish people sometimes for phishing you know and, and we don't tell them why it's important for them to identify that something is is suspicious um, we force people to start doing 
two-factor authentication, SAML, but we don't tell them why is it important, you know? Um, we sometimes deploy technologies and solutions halfway to the capacity that they should be. And I'm not spe specifically saying anything about, um, just in my career, I've seen that, where you buy the top of the line product, um, think about the Gardner Quadrant, mm -hmm. right? So you go and get the best of the best, but you implemented a 30%. Maybe you should have bought the, you know, the no so expensive flashy product and if you were to use it to an 80 percent that would be more effective that there are so many questions in all the things you just stated that i think we could easily take two more hours to talk about it but i will just try and scratch the surface here uh with some of the things so when when you talk about risk which you mentioned very appropriately that sometimes you know if it's not done in the context of risk, then then what's the point? How do you is how do you communicate risk? What how do you frame it in the context of the business? Is your is there some tips and guidances for our listeners that you can provide that are they could make the cybersecurity more tangible of a problem when stated in terms of risk? I think um, there are many ways to do that. Um, one of them could be understanding your data, right? What type of data are you handling? You know, if you're handling, you know, scheduling for product to to be trans transported or to be transformed through your processes, um, would some, somebody disrupting that in, that inf information or you know, instead of twenty, it's four hundred, would that take an impact in your financials or um, so correlating all the, always to money sometimes is, is a good way to or quantify you know the loss of productivity you know if I were to say in my industry if I were to lose email for a week would that be equivalent to the risk of having my uh, refinery shut down for a week you know can I still invoice by hand or communicate picking up the phone to call somebody saying hey uh, you know here is almost like Telegram, right? Um, I still am able to communicate or just drive to my customer and have a meeting instead of, you know, don't have email, I cannot tell, talk to you. But if I'm not able to process my, my uh, the product from A to B and, and take it to my customer, then, you know, that might be more. So the risk of, I guess, going back to risk, you know, what's the risk? Is the data that I'm exposing going to affect my reputation? my ability to do business. So I think painting it on those terms to the business could could drive the point you're trying to make. Sometimes cybersecurity um, or compliance, you've, we've seen us as a consuming resources, right? Budget, 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 because we need to get this right. and that and that. Uh, but it's not until we, I guess we need to frame that, frame it in a way that we can say, we are supporting your business without, these measures of protections or controls in place to address this risk, you know, obviously we have to identify the risk first. Um, it's going to be, we're not going to be the, uh, the enablers of the business function. And IT is so integrated now on everything, you know, from communications to, to processes. Um, there is machinery that is connected to, you know, SCADA systems or uh, sensors that are being connected to 
you know, pipelines or think about it. Um, anything that you can manage now from your phone now, uh, access or, or see, um, those are things that IT and cybersecurity enables. So how do we securely um, give you access to uh, an application that is connected to a SCADA system from your iPad? I would say don't do it. That's that would be my advice. I, I would say See, I, I, <laughs> there 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 is a there is a business case, right? The business is always going to want something, and sometimes cybersecurity's <laughs> role is seen as a, saying no, but it has to be explained why not. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, one thing uh, I don't know if uh, I shared this with you prior to this. I was involved heavily in the chemicals business with an uh, with a uh, engineering conglomerate and spent a lot of time in the oil and gas sector. Uh, so my, my professional advice is someone in order to say that I say, don't do it. I, I'd say something should be air gapped and they should really be right. air gapped. Not because you can, you should. That's right. I'd say, don't, some things are not meant to be connected. Don't do it. Don't be, don't be lazy. Get up, walk to the control room, take a look at the needle, walk over to the piece of equipment, put an instrument on it, check it. Don't rely on web-based analytics because as soon as I give someone the ability to extract data, these systems are so complex, there could be a gap in there that allows somebody to go the other way as well. And now you- StockNix is a, is a good example, exactly... right? You were relying on what you're reading on your screen compared to something that is spinning faster. Um, yeah, we can go into much. Oh yeah, there, but that—that's that, what the, we. The idea there. You know, Hans, that's exactly what we did to the Iranians on their centrifuges, right? That—that's right. uh, that was Operation Nitro Zeus. So, <laughs> so very interesting uh, on that. But when you look at regulation, then regulators, I, I often think, um, I want to be careful because they—they are very, very good people. But I think. Oftentimes they don't have enough information and, and it's a knee-jerk reaction when regulations are being framed. And let me give you an example of where I'm coming from here. The solar winds hack recently that now everybody knows about, right? When you saw members of Congress talk about it, they were talking in terms of, well, we shouldn't allow unauthorized software or truly untested software to be put on government systems. And none of those statements are true. That software was authorized. SolarWinds, very well tested, you know, highly reputable organization, right? It had nothing to do with that. And then if there's a knee-jerk regulation that comes out of it that says thou shall not do X, 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 it's going to be grossly ineffective in preventing. Yeah, we might have a, they might have a good uh, many times that happens, right? You, you look at regulations. The intent, the, there are good intentions behind it, but then becomes a, a, a bill that is like five reams of paper yeah. long. And nobody understands what it's supposed to be doing. And and everybody interpret, interprets it differently. And at the end, you don't, don't get to the core of what you're trying to do. Uh, so regulation sometimes is... It's burdensome. It sometimes is, is misinterpreted in terms of people who are building those type of regulations don't understand the context. So that, so that may be an area where I, I've been very fortunate to be uh, learning. Um, I'm interacting sometimes as 
compliance as part of the mediator between the business or IT and the auditor, yeah. you know, internal or external auditor. And context is key because sometimes the more I understand what, what IT's function is or the business is, has done, uh, the better I perhaps can dis, uh, have a conversation with the auditor saying, well, I think we are, you did not understand, I know what your requirement to test or to give evidence is, but this evidence means this, you know, and try to walk them through it. And something something that could be an issue, it's 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 not necessarily an issue. Yeah, there might be something that it was not necessarily all right there, but it's not necessarily a critical issue. That's right. If we explain it right, the context, uh, and there are other cases where it's, it's clear that you know it was not well done and it has to be an issue. Um, um, I don't have much of influence in, ter in terms of the what is going on in Congress. Uh, I should say that. Uh, but, but you have a lot of state experience, right? You worked with it, the state it, of Indiana for for, yeah. for a de degree of time, which is why I'm very interested in this topic in here. The, the, my interaction with the state of Indiana was more um, as part of my thesis and also developing uh, in what we call the INISAC, which was the concept of the information sharing. Right. Uh, just like we have MSISAC, which is federal to states. Uh, we have the best one, in my opinion, FSISAC, which is the financial yep. services ISAC. You know, be the threat intelligence is shared across financial institutions across the world. And it's very dynamic and well developed. That there is not, the IISAC was the attempt to have the state of Indiana sharing some some curated threat intelligence to throughout the state, you know, through other local municipalities or businesses, local critical infrastructure to say, here are the things you must be, must be aware or maybe looking at you have a small IT shop uh, maybe you should tune your firewall and you know think about it's it's growing this uh, keeping or holding hostage uh, educational institutions that are perhaps not have don't have the budget to protect themselves and they have HIPAA and PII information being uh, ransom you know until either they pay or they have to recover so there's a lot of vulnerabilities that we see um, you would think who would want to uh, attack a hospital or um, a school, but it's, it happens more often than it happens you think, all the time. Police station, you know, and we don't they don't have insurance or they don't have coverage. They don't have the, the IT resources to recover. And it, so that was the idea uh, in the project. I worked in the state of Indiana. Um, it's still ongoing, by the way, and um, I, I hope it continues. But it brings me to, I guess, the information sharing right. portion, right? We we are mandated to to share back to the federal government in many times, and we don't see the the way back. So it's all get, 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 and nothing um, to receive. Maybe I shouldn't say nothing, but uh, we are not built to collaborate in some cases. There is no there there are not many incentives for us to collaborate. Financial services do because there is a financial incentive. You know, well, I'm going to lose money. You know, my yeah. if my customers think that I'm, their their money is not safe. Uh, I am going to lose reputation and eventually customers. So they they build, and they're very serious about it. Um, and that, that that is not necessarily the case for all the ISACs. No, and um, you know that's a very good point. And in is there something like you just mentioned one that the government should be sharing back, but are there other government policy positions? Do you 
or things that, that they should be doing or taking up to help the private sector? Is there that you would say, hey, guys, if you're going to do anything in Congress or at the state level or the local level, think of it this way. Uh, I don't know. I, that's a tough question, I guess. I would say, uh, let me, no, I'm not trying to be um, create controversy here, but deregulate sometimes, you know, make it easier to open a business, make it easy to, um, I don't know, consortiums. We don't have consortiums to acquire technology and security technology. We don't have, I mean, we, I've seen cases where small school corporations get together and say, we're going to buy in bulk and we're going to acquire services to protect our network um, as a conglomerate. We don't see that much. Uh, maybe a competing hospitals can get together and say, let's start sharing some of these things or best practices. You know, it's, it's because it's, I don't know if you heard the concept. Um, I think Google is using this or even Microsoft is saying security is not, let's not think about share security because you use it our services so we give us we it, we have a, a shared fate in lack of security that's correct so it's almost like a fiduciary approach to security which is very interesting it's like if you are if we are unsecure and you are or if you unsecure uh, or misconfigure your our services you are you are you are as unsecure as us so the share uh, fate type of um mentality it's 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 something new that i've started seeing and like i said almost like a fiduciary type of example right so if you think about uh, fiduciary um, investing companies like they would not invest or they would not be investing in something that is uh, or betting against your investments right. on the side to make money now, they will do what is right for them is right for you the same for security um, i haven't seen much of that um, I don't know. If, I don't know if that could be regulated, um, but it can be incentivized. One thing I can say, but it could be incentivized. But how do you incentivize without regulation? That's that's a question. Uh, the government doesn't know how to do that, um, unless you can point to a good example. I would love to learn. Yeah, you know, now uh, you're not putting some... me on the spot, so I got to. <laughs> <laughs> there are some. There are some ways that we've seen that right through um, grants. Um, there have been some um, national labs have been doing a lot of good research and, and publishing it out for for the rest of, for the benefit of the private sector. Universities have have been doing something interesting, a, a little questionable, where they hold the patents of professors or ideas and within their you know and they commercialize it, it becomes something that the public can consume. Um, I don't know, attracting investment in technology. We see collaboration with other countries um, where cybersecurity is, is blooming and good ideas are happening. Um, I don't know if there's enough research and development in, in colleges. Um, Not yet. You, I think there is, but. We're, I, but I think there's a lot of advancements that are being made there. I, I see the number of schools now that are offering an information security degree out of their computer science departments has gone up. And uh, those uh, institutions are actually uh, engaging with the private sector to get opinions and shaping the curriculum, which is really very cool. Uh, you know, I, 
uh, sit on the board uh, of the computer science department, advisory board of the computer science department at Slippery Rock University. And uh, they've been doing a lot of things uh, in terms of shaping their cybersecurity program to match the evolving threat landscape and to have people coming out that are much more in tune with what's happening. And that's kind of cool. That's that's great. That's great to hear. It's very encouraging because um, I can share a quick quick story that I've seen uh, very bright kids coming from college to do their internships and they're br brilliant. You know, they're so eager to do so many things and so prepared in some instances, things I didn't know when I left college uh, and were not necessarily ready for it. But there are some other things that schools are not teaching our kids. They're spending four years of their life doing some, taking classes, and I can relate to that. I've been two years in grad school. There's things I'm never going to use. Um, maybe doing some, some of these schools I've seen doing the requiring students to have a, what do you call it? Apprenti no, not internship or yeah. built in, internship built into their four years or four years and a half. So you take a semester and go to actually do some of the work. And some things that, for example, never heard of is change management. We introduced them the idea of what change management is into the life cycle of an application um, support. And it's like, no, nobody told me, you know, how do I move something to production or what are the steps to, you know, compliance is a foreign concept, you know. And it was in some ways for me too, because I was very concentrated in cybersecurity. So I was I was oblivious to some of these things. And it happens everywhere. If you're looking about, if you're talking about IT, the IT lifecycle, right? You're not only supporting an application, you might be moving to um, uh, interacting more with the business, understanding requirements. Procurement is another one. Yeah. Kids don't know how to, how to write, um, or maybe they should, uh, how to write a requirements, how to evaluate vendors, how to look at um, pricing. If I were to grab somebody and say, okay, we, I need your help to gather requirements and to evaluate vendors and, you know, what do I do? Uh, so there are great opportunities for kids to learn, but also they need to put, the, they need to um, realize that the four years of school is not necessarily going to prepare them for the real life. They need to get out. I, they need to be doing a, a side job or volunteering, if nothing else, you know, uh, and the local university and the local community and, you know. Which is a great segue on. to a very a topic you're super passionate about, and that's volunteering, right? And, yes. I, you know, a little background on that. I, I read that you were actually uh, in a major earthquake at one point in time in your life. I was, um, yes, um, I was, um, what, nine years old, I think. Um, in my hometown in the Django Furu got hit with a 7.3, 7.3? It was very, 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 very uh, big earthquake. Um, a lot of people died because of the type of construction we had in that time in, in my hometown. And um, well, think about all the pipes getting, you know, messed up, not good, reliable water. Um, back then, also, we got hit with a cholera outbreak throughout South America. So, earthquake, think about cholera, you know, on the sanitary conditions. My family was living in the back of our house in a yard with a, on a tent for like nine, nine months while, you know, rebuilding. Um, I got sacred cholera and almost died. Oh and 
but I also saw people coming, you know, people outside our community, international organizations, just neighbor helping neighbor. And that, that I took, I mean, I, that, that was an, an impacted in some ways my life because I, I, I was asking my mom, like, what, where are these people coming from? Why are they doing this? You know, why did we have somebody from the U.S. coming and helping, you know, to do something to help or rescue and uh, or maybe after, right? Many years later, uh, coming and doing clinics and 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 and, I, and she said they do it because um, they feel I mean, they're they're giving back. You know, they are. They are. They feel that they they are doing something for their fellow, you know, human beings. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, it's why would somebody leave their country and go somewhere where they don't know anything about it? And um, obviously, more um, different situations, right? You know, you don't drive yourself, you don't cook your food, you don't know if the water is uh, safe to drink. Um, and come work and, and come volunteer your time. That was a concept that in my mind was not necessarily um, very popular. So I, I learned something there. And obviously throughout my life and some of the things that people have uh, helped me out, I, I thought uh, all throughout my life until now, especially coming to the U.S. where I believe there's part of the culture and I've learned that as well, you know, volunteering in your local community. Yeah. I did that. I started volunteering at my local resource center. I was starting to teach um, GED in Spanish, um, completely outside IT. But I got to know people in my community. I was able to, and they got to know me, it led me to uh, opportunities uh, of employment, improve my English when I first came to the US. Um, so volunteering for me is a way to say thank you, you know, because I've been, I've been blessed in many ways. Um, I've been giving opportunities uh, the U.S. has been uh, a, a country that has opened their arms for me, for you know, for my family, um, and it is a way for me to say I'm here and I want to give back. I want to give back to somebody from the little knowledge I have. Uh, maybe somebody can learn from it, uh, because I did uh, throughout the mentorship I received so far. Uh, I've learned quite a few things and people have been invested time and effort to um, to show me the way maybe I can do some of that too and it doesn't have to be in IT right. although I do some IT volunteering um, it could be serving soup at your local um, kitchen or mission place um, it could be just being aware of where our opportunities to serve on a board or um, participate in, a, in a, an act, an activity in your community get especially now uh, as we're trying to get out of COVID, right? Um, getting back in, in, in interacting with our, our community, our fellow citizen, citizens, as you said. What have been some of your favorite volunteering activities? Um, well, I will have to rate it in some ways. The last one was through Team Rubicon. I was deployed to West Virginia to work on a flood a survey and recovery. Um, that was great because it's been so long. The last one, uh, perhaps, is it was a trip to um, Liberia, Africa, to install a computer lab for a local community college. Wow. I had some friends there that were uh, helping with uh, building agriculture to this um, war-torn country, and 
um, I got the opportunity to go and do something I, I know how to do, you know, to reimage uh, computers, to set them up in a network, to uh, because they are they are learning how to use Microsoft Office and these old computers. And that was very rewarding because uh, not only I was able to help, but it was also something that I was I was comfortable doing, which is networking and, and setting up computers. Oh, that sounds very cool. I, I can't imagine the environment over there. I'm sure it's not uh, at all similar to what we ha are fortunate to have here, but it's a skill that uh, hopefully those people can put to use and, and, and can materially affect their life. Yeah, and I guess my, my, my point to uh, anybody who's listening, doesn't have to be live in the country. It could be your local resource center and they need some help, you know, or it could be helping, I don't know, the uh, elderly in our community to learn about not being um, victims of scams. You know, somebody shouldn't be remoting into your computer to ask you for a refund or refunding your bank account. Yeah. You know, things like that. Um, learning about phishing or, you know, being careful on things you put online or things you share online. Uh, could be as simple as that. It could be just digging a hole or framing a, a wall. Basically, no man is an island. And if uh, you give, you shall get kind of a thing. You should give with the expectation not to receive. That's even, that, that's very apropos. That's correct. Um, and I think uh, th it again, th these things all enrich the community and it enriches people, and it's a very noble act. Uh, so for all our listeners, I I would say listen to Hans here, and and you know if you have that opportunity, absolutely volunteer. I, and and Hans, I know we're right at the hour here. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Do you have any appearances, talks, books, anything that you would? Uh, at all, any organizations that you would like to mention that we can put in the show notes that you would like to guide people to? Ah, you didn't tell me. You didn't give me a fair warning. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not. Um, I'm not writing a book right now. <laughs> uh, like I told you before, I am um, a general. I mean, a normal guy, you know, doing his job. Um, uh, live in a small community. Um, I don't have. Um, I'm not a famous person. Um, I have really, I have been very, uh, what's the word I want to use, um, fortunate to grow a network of uh, like-minded people, which I learned a lot. And also when I had some time, I share some stuff in LinkedIn. Um, I have lots of interest in learning. I know that I'm still in this path of learning. I, I don't claim to be an expert on anything. Uh, I have some areas of concentration, I would call it. Um, and then over the years of my experience has allowed me to have some, um, I guess let's put it this way, have some strong opinions about my experience and, and some things that I've seen that work. Um, but I'm still in this journey to learn. And I think that everybody should should um, just not stop learning. Um, I, I guess that's that's pretty much it. Organizational I support, I mentioned Team Rubicon. Um, I I think that's the last one I would like to mention at this point. We'll put a link to them in the show notes. Uh, and we're at the time, but thank you so much, Hans. This has been wonderful. Really appreciate you taking 
an hour out of your time to be with us today. I, I'm sure it's inspiring and it's going to help some folks. Thank you for inviting me and I hope everybody finds a little bit of information that is helpful. Fantastic. Take care. <laughs>